This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by A&E's hit series, Bates Motel. Catch the new season when it returns, Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're joined by Kevin T. Porter and Demi Adijuibe of the Gilmore Guys podcast to discuss the Gilmore Girls revival. Plus, we'll talk to Mary Elizabeth Ellis, star of The Grinder, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and Kevin T. Porter and Demi Adijuibe, hosts of the Gilmore Guys podcast. Guys, we're so happy to have you. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you who have been living in a hole for the past few months, Gilmore Girls is returning this year to Netflix for a four-episode season helmed by original showrunner Amy Sherman Palladino. And each episode will be 90 minutes long and focus on a different season, winter, spring, summer, and fall. So Kevin and Demi, you guys have been doing the Gilmore Guys podcast, or you had been doing it for about a year when this was announced. Is that right? Yeah, we started back in October 2014. We timed it out so the first episode of our podcast hit the same day that Gilmore Girls hit on Netflix, the original catalog. October 1st. October the 1st, yeah. So I think they first announced this revival in September. So, yeah, it was a nice little bit of October 19th. Oh, that's right. October 19th. Because we wrote a song about it. (laughs) (laughs) What was your reaction when you first heard? It's hard to describe because I think it's something only a few people in the world would understand in terms of the relationship that we have with the show. It was very emotional. It's something that, you know, I've been waiting for, you know, way before the podcast, but ever since the show went off the air and didn't quite end the way that it should have with Amy at the helm. So it was very satisfying to see that at least the opportunity, no matter how it comes out, but the opportunity to end on the terms uh, that Amy wants to end it on is going to happen. So the the revival has pretty much everyone coming. Well, no, not Suki. no Suki. No one and major no omission. Marty. I sort of felt like Marty would be a good person to revisit. I agree. I I actually think Marty was one of her better possible love interests. Not not like really, but I mean, everyone else was such an asshole, <laughs> and Marty was actually smart and liked her a lot. So that was nice. <laughs> Plus, Marty's like a Hufflepuff, you know? <laughs> he's like a sweetheart. He's definitely, out of the boyfriends, he's definitely the Hufflepuff, for sure. Oh, Everyone yeah. else is a Slytherin. Everyone else, Everyone else is a Slytherin. Dean is not a Slytherin. He might Dean, be kind of Dean a Slytherin. Dean is definitely a squib. <laughs> yeah, Dean doesn't even make it into Hogwarts. <laughs> no, Dean is Dean's definitely the guy not. who's on the train and sees people go, like, he sees people going through the wall. He's just like, whoa, that's crazy. I got to tell everyone at the store about this. <laughs> Well, back to the groceries. (laughs) I do think, though, that Dean maybe owns Dosies now because, like, Taylor maybe has retired or, like, sold it to him. That's really sad. That's your predicted Uh, future for when we see him in the (laughs) revival? Well, what... Like, what do you envision for Dean? I think Dean has opened up his own market competing with Dosies, and Dosies is mad about it. Ooh. Uh, That's good. (laughs) There's a lot of shelving happening. Yeah. (laughs) Where do you see the other the other characters yeah do you guys Uh, have any predictions i think jess is working on his third novel i think logan is about to be bankrupt uh (laughs) and like like i said i think dean is probably still he owns some business now maybe a construction business so milo ventimiglia who plays jess said recently that like about where his character will be in the revival he said jess is just up to jess shit he's a little salty and ornery kind of doing his own thing and has zero tolerance for anything or anyone. He's also there to push the ball forward for some folks in Stars Hollow, which is something Jess has always done, whether intentionally, maliciously, or positively. He's always sent people in a direction. 
So it doesn't really sound like that's much of a love interest, right? If he's just like a catalyst. Thank God. <laughs> I don't want him to, I don't need any of them to be a love interest for her at this point. I think the show, you know, in its most primary function, the boys were just catalysts for the girls. Because they would make the boys whatever they needed to be given the season. And it was mostly in character, but then Jess needed to be a certain uh, thing in season six to Rory, so they made him that. Logan needed to be a certain thing for Rory in season five, so they made him that. So I think continuing with making the boyfriends purely functional and subservient to kind of the story, the core story of the girls would probably be the best way to go here. Um, I, I like worry about the premise that Rory would somehow end up with these three people that or with one of three people that she met at like such a young age. And I think that's like an issue that Gilmore Girls has handled really badly over the course of its show. Like, okay, so obviously, like, because Lorelai and Christopher have a child together, they're going to stay in each other's orbit. But the fact that like somebody who was your first love would still sort of cast such an important um, maybe shadow is sort of overstating how sinister it is, but that, that that person would still be like your maybe person. And then, you know, having Lane marry Zach, like after like they're like right. 20 or something and they have children very young, like all of that setup of staying in your small town, I think is like a weird, hard thing given how much we know that like, these are people with like very cosmopolitan tastes. Rory is, um, we're told that she's ambitious, although I don't actually find her to be like that hard working really like yeah. or she works hard but i don't think she's that uh dazzling well they tell us that she works hard but she they don't really show it i think she could work smarter not more right <laughs> like smarter not harder um so i think like like i am a little apprehensive that that we're going to be kind of just seeing the same old like triangles play out again because it's one thing to be hung up on stuff when you're 20 but at 33 for that to still be <laughs> your thing, like, like at that, that point, it's an emotional disability. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that is not like that's, that's like pathological. That's a good point, and I think another similar point. You know, a lot of people have been talking about. You know, ever the gang is all back together, and like, how many throwbacks are we going to see? Like, how much do you want this to be something that's a series of throwbacks and in jokes versus something that's just a completely different story that tells us about where they are now? I think going forward is better, and I think you hit the nail on the head of why it wouldn't make sense to be looking backward constantly in terms of the boyfriend stuff. And I actually think the one prediction I would have is I don't think they will do that. Like, And then Rory marries Jess, end of the show. Like, I think they will kind of have a final rebuttal because I'm sure Alexis, Lauren, Amy, Daniel, they're all tired of answering, like, which team are you on? So if there's any meta moment on the show... Like, I don't need, like, and then Mr. Kim was just buried under some antiques. I don't need that. <laughs> the one thing that would be nice is if someone just took Rory by the shoulders and said, listen, they were all good boyfriends at each of those times that they were in your life, and you don't need to end up with any of them. Let's move on. Like, something <laughs> like that bold, almost just, like, looking at the camera, move on, and then just keep going on with the show. But yeah, as far as like winks and callbacks go, you want to establish the world of the show and you want to feel like the continuum of it, of picking up where you left off. I don't know if I need the, yeah, all the like winking and nods because even like in the new Star Wars, the the parts I found most interesting in episode seven involved all the new characters and all the new stuffs, uh, the new stuffs. Uh, it was like <laughs> so much less so than like, remember Princess Leia? She's General Leia now. I was like, no, give me Ray, Give me Rey. cool new pilot. Give me Finn. You know, those were the most interesting things. So I hope Gilmore stays true to the core of the story of the girls, but then falls suit in that and looks more ahead than looking back. Do you guys think that Paris and Doyle are still together? Oh, for sure. They're one of the only uh, couplings on the show that never drove me insane. And almost, and almost always on the show felt perfect just because we were given it in such small doses, but the small doses we were given it in felt completely true to who they were as people and who they were together. So I feel like that's one of the things if they continued on with that, and like they're married now or they have like real type A children or something, then that would totally make sense. Yeah. I'm definitely most interested in seeing how Paris is now and how she's matured and grown and you know, how much of her neuroticism has worn off or stayed with her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Um, actually, Kevin and I emailed a little bit about this when the casting news came out that April Nardini will be returning to Stars mm-hmm. Hollow. Um, uh, so that, Team April! Yes. <laughs> I, I feel weird because obviously this character uh, is a child and it's sort of uh, inappropriate to hate a child that much, but like I do not care for April as a character whatsoever, and I was like really not excited that this was going to be a part of the story. I think the fact that April is returning means that you know Amy doesn't think she made a mistake with April, which is very fascinating to think of. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because that's... everyone oh. else insists that she has. I've only seen her in one episode so far. Oh, okay. um, but I, I think that her being there is a good sign because they're not going to redrudge up the idea that oh, April's ruined the only relationship in the show that everyone's been behind. You know, if she's still there eight years later, it's got to be for a different reason. Like maybe she's in college and she's just there because they can't kill her off. You know, it would make more sense. To to keep her than it would to just be like yeah she's gone and that's not a problem anymore so i don't think we have anything to worry about with her um, margaret Mar- you should see margaret's face right now she, well, here's she's so thing. terrified here's what, here's what i would contend with april is like on a micro level i think the sh- the character totally works like i think vanessa morano is a terrific actress she does the character very well she's sweet she's cute she had she became annoying because of the macro story and then what it represented in that sense so when she's not playing that role so to speak in these new episodes when she's not the wedge that drives luke and lorelei apart i think people are going to be a lot more kind towards that and be able to assess and judge that character on its own for its own terms that's true. I also, as a huge fan of Switched at Birth, maybe have generated <laughs> more positive emotions to this actress. And it, it's not, it really she wasn't was the really, performance. Yeah, it was not, it was not was at all that. And now, admittedly mm-hmm. also, I, I mean, again, I've only seen one episode of her, but it seems like the driving wedge between Luke and Lorelai is more Luke than April. It's just more we didn't really need... Right. To yeah, I think Luke and Lorelai could have they could have had their own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that we all agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, play with the pieces you have on the board. Just don't don't just build dumb new bullshit on the board just to make it interesting, which yeah. is what they did with that character, unfortunately. And like I I am pro Luke and Lorelai, although I did like Digger a lot, and I kind of uh is that Jason Eichmann? Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> I was just going to say, I thought he was the worst I boyfriend. I love Digger. Oh, I think Max Medina is the worst. Max, I mean, she's had some bad ones. I, I mean, I just don't know if I've but, liked but any Max of her isn't boyfriends. Max is a bad boyfriend. No, he's not a bad boyfriend. But he's, he's just a black he's hole. A bad, he's an annoying character. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I liked so Max was... a lot. But it was like so clear. I think it's hard as just like a TV fan to watch something like that character get set up. Because you're like, I know this won't... Work right. right, like I know that, and so having to be like, maybe it will. It's like I know it won't. Like don't, like I don't want to go through this rigmarole, and and especially upon rewatching as many times as I have, I feel like the Max arc carries less and less, like holds less and less water every time. There was no one like quite charming enough for me. Like even on Sex in the City, if everyone like knows she's going to end up with Big, like when Burger came around, I was like, hey, this guy's pretty charming and great and actually posed some sort of a challenge. Whereas with Lorelai, I didn't never felt that way about anyone. Like it was all about Luke. Yeah. <laughs> it was clearly Luke from the beginning, but I really liked the chemistry she had with Christopher, which is not a sign that I want them to be together. Together, it's just I think that they were very much like I think Christopher is the male Lorelai. I think he has less of um an emotional center. Like I think Lorelai has like like the problem she runs into all the time is that she has like really really rigid expectations and it comes up because she considers herself to be easygoing, which she is not. I think Christopher is, like, very, very easy to sway. He's much more weak-willed. Yeah. yeah. I think, like, he doesn't... I mean, like, that's, that's I don't think, like, a weakness in terms of writing that character. Like, I think his deal is that he's easy to influence. Um, but he is in all these ways that Lorelai is not. And so I think one of the attractions between the two of them is that, like, he kind of likes to get bossed around, and she super likes bossing people around oh dang that's so true that is so true with the character of christopher even the way he was like activated as a sleeper agent by emily gilmore (laughs) mid-season five to wreck the wedding vow renewal and all that stuff yeah i hate it a lot oh that was yeah you probably will end up demi if i had to predict i bet you would you will end up hating that more than you hate april 
I already hate it more than a lot of things in the show. Cause, cause I, think that <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't like the choice that the show makes sometimes where they're just like they need to flip a character so quickly that they don't want to build up to it. They'll just be like, well, in one episode, they have completely different motivations from what they were having like six hours ago in real time. So, yeah, I think the show has a really strange relationship with time. Like, especially so like, and I mean, this obviously was brought to my attention obsessively reading television without pity recaps back in the day, but having every episode anchored in some capacity by a Friday night dinner means we should be able to tell what day of the week it is most other scenes because we're either building up to that dinner or recovering from that dinner. Um, and there's plenty of instances where it's like, how, what day is it? How long, how much time has transpired? I feel like we've gotten coffee at Luke's nine times, but it's all the <laughs> same day. <laughs> like there's just yeah. like such a strange, and then I think they kind of, like exacerbate this by focusing so much on like it's basket day it's this festival it's that festival it's the end of the summer it's graduation it's final like sort of emphasizing all these like external time signifiers and then not really being able to keep up with the guidelines that that would probably entail um that's so funny too because that plays out on a micro level from like episode to episode but then even in the macro stuff they contradict themselves constantly yeah in terms of like Okay, when did Lorelai come to Stars Hollow? Oh my god. When did Rory meet Luke? <laughs> when did Luke meet Lorelai? Like it's it's all kind of a mess. And at the day, it ultimately like doesn't matter too too much, but it is one of those things where it's like that's a problem like on both on all levels of the show. The the time issue for sure. I mean, obviously these are the kinds of things that only become irksome when you have like this sort of Talmudic obsession with dissecting all of it. I don't know that I necessarily was bothered by this on initial viewing. Right. Well, and that's what's going to be interesting about the revival is because the Paladinos didn't make this show for binge culture, for internet obsessive culture. But now with the Netflix revival, even as unplugged as they still seem to be, they are making it for just that because it's just that culture that brought it back in the first place. So I wonder if there will be a little more attention paid to those sorts of details and those things that you think wouldn't be consequential or matter on that level, if they'll strive a little more to uh, to tidy up some of those things. I don't know. How big a deal do you guys think not having Suki really is? I don't think it's a big deal at all. She wasn't like so integral into... a a lot of parts of the show during the actual run I, run, I think she was just such a beloved character that right. people want to see her back, but it's not going to fundamentally change anything about the, how things work on the show. Yeah, I don't think she's like a plot activator in a lot of ways, even though I like her storylines. Um, if anything, I think a lot of what she represents is like how callous Lorelai can be and how like self-absorbed, because I think in terms of like, you know, we're set up to see Lorelai in all of these, like, fascinating, admirable ways, but then she treats her best friend like super garbage. <laughs> I think both Rory and Lorelai's best friends bring that out and, in contrast, make you realize how terrible they are <laughs> in a lot of ways. I think that's the function they both serve as they're just, like, going on and on about their own nonsense and not paying much attention or affection to their friends or, or tending to them. I love that article that you guys put out on Vulture back when Gilmore first came on about, like, uh, are the are the Gilmore Girls actually terrible people or whatever? It <laughs> that was, was me. It was, it was very illuminating. Yeah, it was so good because it's like, yeah, I, that might be the case. I mean, it, I, it, is, it especially bothers me when Lorelai interacts with anyone in the service industry because she's like incredibly rude to waiters, to baristas, to like, and it's just like you work in hospitality, like you have been a hotel maid, like don't you? know how rude you're being right she thinks she's being like charming or something i don't know it's weird because she thinks like emily is so mean when emily does that but that's like oh i learned it from watching you mom (laughs) i feel like she knows that the entire town of stars hollow treats her as a princess so she's essentially just like oh that i would deign to even talk to you like (laughs) you should be very happy that i'm even being so funny right now i think this is maybe why paris stands out as like such a fun and sort of ironically lovable character is Rory like shits on people so much and, and sort of like expects <laughs> everyone to and, and and everyone does sort of like like rise to like her aid at all times and, and is just like there for her and like nice to her and like tells her she's special all the time. And Paris is sort of the one person who ever pushes back on that until we meet Mitchum Huntsberger. Like 
Paris is the only one who's like, I don't think you are that special. And I think like as much as early on, I found Paris to be like extremely frustrating and I found her just like very sad. Like it was just like such a bummer. I think like over the course of the show, watching Paris kind of like have her own sort of backstory and weaknesses and figuring out that like, oh, like her resentment towards Rory like makes a lot of sense. No, totally. And she's, I think you're totally right. Like, and she points out, like, look at you. You're beautiful. You look like an angel. Things are a lot easier for you, yeah. you know? And it's it's great to, yeah, it's great to have that voice I mean, on like, the in show. the Puffs episode where Paris has, like, acne medication on. And, like, <laughs> yeah. she's like, that's what you look like when you're sleeping. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the big question of the revival, too, is, like, what, what role will the Puffs play and that, I know that's why, like Francie, there's not been the online petitions to get Francie back, but I know they're coming. We want to lead the charge for that on our show, and it's going to be terrific to see what they do. What would you say is the best season of Gilmore Girls? Who <sighs> you know? I think maybe on an episode to episode level, I thoroughly enjoyed season four because that's when I first started watching the show while it was on the air. I didn't watch it from day one mm-hmm. uh, that it aired. But but season four, there's just like really strong arcs for both Lorelai and Rory. And it is the act one, act two break where the fairy tale of the first three seasons, and it's like they're so pretty and they talk fast and everyone loves each other in small town. And that's sto- that sort of gets broken down with Rory committing adultery and all these difficult things in college and their relationship shifting and them not being able to be there for each other. I feel like they told that story super, super well. And I love that season four is, for the most part, not bogged down in boyfriend nonsense. Like Dean and Jess, like Rory's not in a relationship in all of season four. So it's not like the discussion and the enjoyment of that is not bogged down by those factors. I will say, I think you guys have stuff to look forward to in season seven. I think it gets a really bad rap. And season six to me is worse than season seven. (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, is season seven even worth it? It's a question I get for Stay Tuned a lot and have answered a couple of times at this point. Um, Like season seven is worth it. I think there's moments in it that still like have that character integrity that that I think got lost a lot on, for example, West Wing, um, where it was just like, this would never happen like Toby would never do that, you know, and you're just like, we're rewatching the same show. And I think for season seven of Gilmore Girls, uh, some of like the the dialogue is different, certainly. And I think it's it all feels a little bit desaturated. But I think a lot of the stories are good and interesting and fun and that we still get a lot of like <clears throat> set them up, knock them down. Like this is the tension. This is the building. This is the like sort of climax. This is the fallout. And we still have like pretty well paced season overall. For me, when I had initially watched it, I had no idea there was anything had changed. So I was like, "Oh wow, people really hate that season." But it didn't. I didn't like really? register. That's so surprising that you didn't notice like a dialogue shift at all. I mean, I think I, in retrospect, I see it. But at the time, you know, I was just was a fan of the show, and I was just watching it. And I was in college, and you know, it was like I wanted to see what happened to these characters in their last season. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I am certain there will be, like, little micro-pleasures to look forward to in Season 7. Like, it can't all be, like, just 100% garbage nonsense. It's just the idea that it's not the author's voice that I think just bugged me too much to even deal with it. Because I did try. I tried for, like, five minutes of the Season 7 premiere. And I was like, <laughs> That's nope, not a try, Kevin. It. That's like a no-thank-you-bite. It was a college try, my friend. <laughs> I gave it the college try, and I'm going to give it the college whatever on, on our show now. Like, Because this will be the first time Demi and I are watching the show together for the first time, you know, is in Season 7. So we're going to be experiencing... All the good and bad of season seven together. So we're really looking nice. forward to that. But season seven is the one season I haven't rewatched a lot. And whereas I've watched every other season, like te- at least like seen each episode 10 times. So it's de- I think the later seasons for me have less of that kind of nostalgic, like this feeling that I loved when I watched it, that it just feels comforting and wonderful to put it back on. My go to like. I want to watch a Gilmore Girls episode and feel good is definitely um, last week fights, this week tights. 
like Ooh, yes 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 <laughs> yeah like i just really tj remind <laughs> that's the one where luke and lorelei dance at his sister's wedding uh, uh, <laughs> that one's amazing it's so good it's so good and like um when like when we have like the troubadour singing that like horrible like song at their wedding yeah. and they're they're like think of horrible things like avalanche genocide like then i don't know every time i go to a wedding i like think about that like, <laughs> think about genocide at every wedding you go to i think about like i am very prone to church <laughs> giggles and so i try not like i because i like weddings get kind of corny sometimes and it's hard not to get the giggles and i'm like <laughs> oh this is this is like that moment on gilmore girls and they're oh vanishing. yeah no, wedding giggles are the best for sure <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kevin, any favorite episodes that stick out to you? The dance marathon episode, oh, yes. 07, they shoot Gilmore's, don't they? Uh, 422, when Luke and Lorelai finally get together, the season oh four God. finale. But then the moments that really stick with me in the show were the sad moments. The moments that were like, oh, this feels like the ending of a cable drama. <laughs> like, like when Emily and Richard are separated, she goes on a date with Bobo Charlie Rose, oh. and then she comes home... <laughs> And just cries in her oh, in God. her entryway. That's one of my favorite things I ever saw on the show. I mean, just in general, all of Emily's like greatest hits moments. Her telling Shira off at the the fun the DAR fundraiser. Uh, you know, her and Laura like connecting when she's looking at a plane because Rory just left her. You know, Emily, for as flawed and as manic as the character got, especially near the end, she's still. Head and shoulders, my favorite character. I actually like the uh, vow renewal episode because I'm a sucker for women in tuxedos. That's just like one of my favorite looks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, like, gosh. She was so adorable. It's just like, it's so cute. She, it's super aw. cute. I love, uh, I love, and for tonight, this is our, like, my name is Bill and this is our song. Like, come on. That is like uh, the best thing time. in the world. Yeah. Like, I just, I actually really like that episode, even though I think some of the story, like, I don't love obviously that like Emily is is meddling so much and we have I, I'm not a Logan person at all ever like I hate Logan so much <laughs> like I think Logan is like definitely yeah join the club I firmly believe he like is plays poker with Martin Shkreli like <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah like, like yeah Logan would raise the price of AIDS drugs like I, that's for that, sure oh, I like his character because he is kind of that asshole you meet in college and I love you know, I, it still feels really true to the progression of Rory's character again. And, like, the scene where she's breaking down crying on Lorelai's lap, being like, why doesn't he just like me? It's like, it really feels very true to those emotions you feel in college where, like, you're into this person who is clearly, like, a terrible person. But Yeah, I get it. I also just feel like... So as somebody who worked at a college newspaper, like, guys like Logan don't really work at college newspaper. And you think, like, that's just, that's like, true. Like, that... And, you know, I went to University of Chicago. There's plenty of, like, econ bros. Bros is sort of a strong term for U of C. But, like, that, like, I don't know, capitalistic and and that kind of stuff, they exist, certainly. But, like, Rory would not have a hard time at any school finding people that are not like that, you know, that are, like, more her speed and, like, more into what she's into. And I thought, like, this idea that Logan would be her college sweetheart for so long was just, like, off yeah you know and it is like they you know just screen time wise have the longest functional relationship out of you know any of Roy's boyfriends Mm -hmm. on the show they're together for the longest amount of time in season five six and seven so I really do wonder what exactly the Paladinos were trying to accomplish with that because I don't think they were like let's make a D bag Magoo to put her up with I think they really were thinking this is the appealing side of money. This guy is cool. But then it just reads now as like, this is like poor man's entourage. Yeah. I don't <laughs> like know. In a lot of ways. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they were going for with that. I also thought a little bit he was supposed to be like Rory's Christopher in some ways, that he's like sort of irresponsible. Like he's there, but he's not there. Real like sort of in- intermittent response. Like you can never really get a handle on him he has a lot of money from his family but maybe he doesn't care because like he's cool or whatever um and i think (laughs) that premise faded over the course of their relationship and then it made even less sense to me like you know just if we're going to be like 40 and i think it makes sense to see rory pursue men that are 
going to let her like repeat patterns from her life, whether it's with her grandfather or with Luke, who is like functionally her father or with Christopher. But I don't know. I just no, I, never got it. With I Logo. agree. <laughs> it probably went on too long. <laughs> and it's weird that that's like the choice she has to make at the end. Like at yeah. the very end, like that doesn't feel like the appropriate choice to make. Like, should I, you know, be with this guy or go off and Ooh. do my own thing? Right, which I don't think would have been the case had the Paladinos not left. I don't think that would have been the dichotomy of that. Because then, again, it just makes it all about a dude. I don't know. I think it, I think their relationship would have continued because the Paladinos, like, and again, I feel like I'm picking on Gilmore Girls. It's like a show that I obviously, like, love and treasure so much. But I do think they have a hard time knowing how to escalate young relationships. And that's why we see Dean get married in high school and lane get married almost like like barely two years out of high school that's why you know paris and doyle move in together uh which is not unheard of in college but i'm about their age in school and that was very unusual uh yeah especially among people who were not like for example getting married very young because they were evangelical christians do you know what i mean like uh so yeah that's what it feels like it feels like oh did the paladinos go to like a christian college (laughs) and like Pick up all the because it, it is it's seriously like the marriage rate of in the age is like a Mormon community on the show. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes. And what's weird is like, I mean, because I have to be like the world's most correct person. I like Connecticut. I Google this. Connecticut actually has the highest age of any state for average age at first marriage. So like Connecticut is even less likely to be producing people getting married at age like 12. Uh, And so I think, I mean, I think that's like a struggle that a lot of teen or college focused shows have because, uh, like, from a drama perspective, you want things to increase in seriousness and to increase the stakes and to increase how do we show that this relationship is growing and getting more serious. And I think as adults, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that when you're in high school or college, like, seriousness takes on a very different set of circumstances than it does as an adult. So I think the like, are we going to have children conversation is not really like a thing you do with your right. like high school or college boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> should we move in together? Do we have the same values? Like let's get married. Like that escalation just isn't super common among teenagers. <laughs> right. And that was always And like... oftentimes like, yeah, the show would stumble in general and just showing like young culture because yeah. like everybody was into the same like weird Howard Hawks movies from the 40s and could draw <laughs> upon them. You know, and that's something that's shared on the show. But even, like, I think about that that uh, party scene in season three where Jess and Dean have a fist fight finally. And just even looking at the background players in that scene and the girl going like, yeah, rock and roll. Like, it is very, <laughs> it is very much like a 30-something, you know, Hollywood writer's idea of, like, kids like this right you know that's what it, that's what it plays like to me oftentimes are there moments of the show that you guys have found to be like super real for you oh man i you know i think as you get older with anything that continues to be in your life you know like music you revisit or tv shows your relationship changes you know on a continuum with your age and even when i was watching it for the first time when i was younger the most resonant relationships were that of like the older generation, like Emily and Lorelai and Richard and Emily and all those. And I think those continue to be even as like the relationships in my own family progress. And you see how, how resonant and how truthful a lot of those depictions were. I totally agree with that. And I mean, I was watching this show at a time when I was about Rory's age and, you know, I had these angsty feelings towards my mom, which felt similar to Lorelai and her mom and kind of romanticized her relationship with Rory. And my mom would watch it with me sometimes and be like, well, this, what is this relationship between this mother and daughter, you know? And it's like, it's like, it felt like a nice, like fantasy of what a mother daughter relationship would be like, not to say, I mean, it's different for every person, but like, and watching Emily and Lorelai kind of have these whenever they do have a heartfelt moment together that's when i felt really touched when they actually did connect on some level and and truthfully that's the only thing i want from the revival the reason i'm so interested and love the show is probably different from a lot of people like i don't have that much you know invest in like oh boyfriend x or luke and lorelei one true pairing forever even though obviously i love all those characters and they're terrific but for me the big investment point is 
Emily and Lorelai. And I think the thing that the show kind of leaves a cliffhanger on emotionally is their resolution. That's the thing, you know, that continued throughout the show. And the show always did a pretty great job at depicting. There was never a moment of connection they had on the show, though, where they hugged or said, I love you. I don't know. Maybe they didn't season seven. It was always taken away. They don't. They never hug. It was always like they almost reach it and then they just something bad happens. I mean, that show also like is really bad at hugs. Like it's not a show that it has a very good. <laughs> yes, I mean, so like I think we can say like a lot of positive things about Alexis Bedell, but good hugger or like credible hugger is not <laughs> one of them. Oh, my gosh. No, we just did a live show covering uh, 610 uh, here in L.A. And I brought out a laser pointer and played this hug she has with Luke in it's slow like, motion. It's- yeah, no, it's like an alien studying how uh, how humans hug, and they're like arm go, <laughs> lean go, yeah. like it's horrible. <laughs> and then like when we see Luke and Lorelai kiss, which is like vanishingly few times for a couple that was together for a long time on the show, they yeah. like they always have to me their arms in like the wrong spots where it's like do another take, <laughs> yeah. and this time switch whose arms are on each other's shoulders. Like, <laughs> like there's, like, it's, I think the show has, like, sort of a very waspy relationship with uh, intimate touch. Like, it's just, <laughs> like, we're not seeing credible cuddling. We don't, like, it just doesn't ever scan. One of the things that I'm curious about for the revival, and I think um, would make sense in a lot of ways, is that uh, Lorelai and Emily's relationship will be super, super different after Richard dies, and that that will inevitably change some of the dynamic there. Like, I think it's possible for it to fracture their dynamic in a lot of ways, but I'm sort of hopeful that it actually winds up bringing them, like, like a new sense of understanding for each other in other ways, because I think when you have catastrophic grief and you have this sort of permanent huge altering in in how your family looks like people kind of rise to the occasion sometimes and and I think because Lorelai and Richard shared a lot of get it doneness in this way that Emily sometimes did not I think Lorelai is probably more likely to be like let me handle some of these business affairs that kind of stuff those like weird frustrating tedious headache things that come sort of in the wake of that kind of tragedy <laughs> I'm talking about them like they're people in my life <laughs> but like I, I actually are, though, I are. know I've loved them for so long. <laughs> but, like, I actually can sort of envision, um, you know, not that I think we suddenly have them be, like, super buddy-buddy and everything's great. I don't think that makes sense just in terms of writing drama or comedy, frankly. But if the death did not bring them closer together or help them connect in some way, then it would just be the most nihilistic show in the world. <laughs> where it's like, my yeah. father died and I continue to not be in good relationship. Yeah. So now I don't speak to my mother ever. And she yeah. is super, super alone till the darkness comes, which it's coming for all of us. Like, oh, oh, the, that's, a lot, that's the final four words, actually. Yeah. Four darkness before and darkness after. Dream less, yeah. Rory. Yeah. That's right. Uh, okay, I think we probably yeah, have I, to leave it there. Yeah, right I think that's a good stabbing yeah. point. <laughs> Oh, boy, the darkness is coming, everyone. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gavin. This was really fun. Yes. Thank oh, you. thank you. I love the Vulture TV podcast. This was such a pleasure. If you're out on the road, feeling lonely and so cold, all you have to do is call my name and I'll be there on the next train Coming up, I'll chat with Mary Elizabeth Ellis of The Grinder, but first a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by A&E's hit series Bates Motel. On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern, Bates Motel reopens on A&E for its fourth season. A modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho, Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norman and Norma suspicious of one another, and their trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as this season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy, and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune in to Bates Motel, Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. I'm joined today by a longtime TV favorite, Mary Elizabeth Ellis, who you'll know as the waitress from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. This season, she's starring alongside Fred Savage and Rob Lowe, 
in one of fall's most promising comedies, The Grinder. Honey, what are these musings? Uncle Dean was really encouraging me to explore my thoughts and express them through prose in my journal. I didn't even know you were doing that. Yeah, it sounds like a, a great thing to, to explore your, your thoughts. Through prose. And we talked them through, and I guess it just made me feel less alone. Oh. Okay, well, I could do that with you, right? That sounds fun. No, it's not fun. It's actually really serious. Did you know Dean was doing all that? No, I didn't. It's kind of sweet. I mean, it seems like they really connected with him. No, this isn't my fault, honey. I just asked him what his plan was. He was the one that blew up and cut off all contact. I am not saying it's your fault. I just think the kids really miss him. Yeah, I know. Wait a second. Do you miss him? What? You miss Dean living here? No! You do! Honey, that's a crazy thing to say. You... No. No! I think you need to explore your thoughts in a journal through prose. I'm... I think I'm good with my thoughts. We're good, me and my thoughts. Thanks so much for, for joining me today. Happily. The Grinder is a show that was such a pleasant surprise of the Fall Network TV comedy slate. And I wanted to just go back first to how you first got involved. I know Fred Savage had previously directed you in episodes of Always Sunny. Is that yes. is that how it began? Yeah, well, um, I was planning to take last pilot season off because I I had written a pilot with um, Artemis Tebdani, who is my best friend and who plays Artemis on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And then I got my agents were like, we really actually think the script is really funny and we just would like for you to read it. And um, it was the grinder. And I read it and I don't, pilots usually aren't that good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is, it has a clear voice. It's making me laugh, like thinking of Rob Lowe and the part. And then I found out Fred was doing it um, and I could really hear him making it really funny. And I was like, you guys, this is good. I just, I don't know. I don't want to be like the wife on a TV show. And I think I'm going to focus on my own stuff. And they were like, all right. So they passed for me. And then I went in and they were like, we, the writers just really want to meet you and talk to you. So I went in and I met um, Jared and Andy and they're just smart and funny and nice to be around. And, um, we're like, you know, we know this, um, this part, like, it's kind of written, like, as, like, a regular, like, mom, and we really want some, you know, would want you to bring your own voice to it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll just go in and I'll just, like, read with Fred and see if it feels right. And it was one of the most fun acting experiences I've ever had. Um, wow. You know, I'd worked with him as a director, and so I was like, I don't know how he's going to be as an actor. It's been a long time. (laughs) But he was so fun and funny, and we just really had um, an easy, like, chemistry, and um, it was fun. It's been so nice to watch your character, Debbie, become a more integral part of the show. And as the first season has gone on, we've kind of seen more of her life outside of her husband, Stuart, more of her at the workplace. I had seen some people on Twitter, you know, asking for more of your character on the show. Is that something showrunners are responding to, to this kind of audience feedback? Yeah, I, I think I think so. And um, the guys always have my best interest in mind and want to write a strong, like, good female character. Um, I'm also, you know, always aware of it and, and kind of, like, giving them my input. And they're always happy when I bring something to them, I bring their attention to it. Like, I'm, I really honestly shouldn't be in this thing because I'm not saying anything or I need to have an opinion, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're always like, oh yeah, of course, let's, what do you, you know, what's your idea? Like, what do you want to do? Which is great. It's great to have that kind of understanding on their part. Uh, Yeah, I read, you had said somewhere that you were making Fred Savage more of a feminist. Like, he would read things and be like, oh, you can't be doing that. You need to, I need, I can bring the the turkey into the, into the scene or whatever the case may be. It's (laughs) true. It's true. You've said, so you played the waitress on Always Sunny for 11 seasons now, and, you know, that role is so insane. (laughs) And you've said that this character is more similar to who you are in real real life. So has that been kind of nice? And what in what ways do you feel like you relate to Debbie? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I really like about it is playing a mom, because I am a mom in real life. 
it's nice to be able to bring that part of myself in, you know, speaking of, of like feminist ideas and things to be like a woman can be like strong and independent and have a place in, in the workforce and also be like the nurturing person who cooks the meals and takes care of a lot of stuff at the house and, and drops the kids off. Um, so I think portraying more of all of those sides of, of myself and of women as a whole has been really nice. You know, I was going, I went back and watched the pilot of Always Sunny, and I'm wondering how you composed the character originally and how you've changed how you play her over the years. Because it feels like she's gotten weirder over time, and she's almost become more desperate and kind of like Charlie in a way. Yeah, I'm sure you know the saying, like, jumping the shark mm-hmm. in television. So, um I mean, whenever I watch Sunny now, I'm like, isn't it kind of amazing and, like, totally freeing that you guys don't ever have to worry about that? The show can be as ridiculous (laughs) as it wants to be, and no one's ever like, wow, this show has gotten ridiculous. Right. I I think that also relates to my character on the show. The whole world has gotten crazier. Um, She's gotten crazier, too, and... When they write stuff like that for me, I'm always like, oh, goody, this is fun. <laughs> I get to, like, shit in a purse in a shoe store. Yeah. No, do you, I mean, you're you're married to your co-star, Charlie, and mm-hmm. he's also a creator on the show. Do you have any input into the waitress's plot lines? Not really. I mean, I'm sure that if I really, if I wanted to, I could bring stuff up, but it's kind of more fun to just be like, what am I doing this year? Right. You, like, where am I going? I definitely like like it when they are like, she's like falling off the wagon again and (laughs) is doing crazy stuff. I'm curious if you've noticed any differences in working on a network comedy on The Grinder, whereas Always Sunny is on cable, and any sort of fundamental differences in how how things work. Um, I feel like at this point, Sunny runs itself. And while we, you know, I'm not a writer, so I can't really speak as a writer, but watching Charlie do it. I know FX is really good about giving a few good notes on episodes, but really like kind of letting them make their own show now. Mm -hmm. And I think um, probably especially because it's the first year of the grinder, you know, we have a table read before every um, week of production and the network sits in and the studio sits in. And I think that that's always something that is more prevalent in, um, in network television than it is in cable, just the kind of amount of voices that uh, have, need to be heard before a show can can be shot. Right. I read in an interview you did with the AV Club that you talked a little bit about how weird it is to kiss someone for your job, especially Fred yeah. Savage, who's a friend of yours. Does that ever get less weird with time, or does that never go away? <laughs> I, I mean... Um, Charlie and I have been together for almost 15 years. So, I mean, we were, I was 22 when we met. We were really young. So we've kind of grown up doing this together. And I always get cast as the person who's like, this is the person you make out with before you find the person you should really <laughs> fall in love with. So I feel like I kiss someone in almost every project that I do. It doesn't really get less weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe you get used right. to it. Yeah. But what I was going to say was that because Charlie and I have always had that, it's not as weird. But Fred was like, Fred's wife, Jenny, was like, it's really weird to watch you kiss someone else because he never acted as an adult. So he was never married to someone else or, you know. So for for Always Sunny, I mean, when watching the pilot again, I realized it it hasn't even become more crazy. It's like the N word was used in the pilot. You know, do you think they could get away with something like that today? I I think so because they're idiots. I was thinking about it this morning, that episode where from, I think it's from last season where um, Charlie like leaves. And so they're like, whatever, we can get this mouse out of the wall without Charlie. And Sweet D ends up getting her hand stuck in the wall in a rat trap. And then they're all huffing glue, (laughs) you know, or even the Charlie McDennis games. It's like, People relate to the characters so much and are like, you guys are my friends. Like, you are us. And I'm always like, that's not great. You probably shouldn't be like these people. Right. So stupid. There should always be a warning at the beginning of every episode that's like, don't do these things. These people are stupid. Right. I mean, I think most 
people have that I mean have that kind of awareness that that <laughs> I think you most would hope. people do. I yeah. I did get in a like a full on yelling fight with someone at one point that was it was a guy who was using the N word and I was like, uh, it's really offensive for you to say that. And he was like, why? Your hu- your husband's show says it all the time on television. And I'm like, right, because they're idiots. So what they're saying is people who say this thing are idiots. So you're an idiot is what's happening right now. I would love to also, by the way, see a plot line on The Grinder where we find out that Debbie used to be the waitress and Charlie shows up as her old stalker. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Who knows? Something like that could happen. The rules on the grinder are so weird, yeah. and I feel like we haven't quite figured those out, too, because it's like Jason Alexander plays Cliff Bemis, so does Seinfeld never exist in this world, but... Like, we also know who different celebrities are, and Timothy Oliphant's a real Right, it's this whole meta-universe. There's so much possibility now that you mention yeah. that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mary Elizabeth. Thank you so much. What do you want, Charlie? Ah, oh, what do you want, Charlie? Um, well, I'd like you to take a look at the lovely young African-American woman sitting at the table over there. Okay. That woman is my friend. Wow. Good for you. So, the other day when you heard me saying something about certain people hanging from said rafters, and I was quoting a friend of mine. What are you who trying to say? To... Spit it out. Well, maybe now that you know that I'm not racist, you and I could maybe go on a little. Dude, N O. How many times do I have to say it to you? One time is fine. Well, one apparently time is... one time is well, not fine because no, I said it I, I, Well, one time per time that I ask you. What's going on up here? Oh, not too much. Charlie's using you to prove that he's not racist, and then he asked me out on a date. Charlie, is this true? Did that upset you if it was something that was true? That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at GazellaFate. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Sites. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.